Welcome to the Lancaster Patriot Podcast. My name is Chris Hume. I'm the managing editor with the Lancaster Patriot, a print newspaper serving Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and beyond. And I'm joined today by Russ Diamond, who is a Pennsylvania state representative serving the 102nd Legislative District, which consists of portions of Lebanon County. He's been a vocal opponent of government mandates over the past two years. He's also running for Lieutenant Governor of Pennsylvania. Representative Diamond, thank you for joining me today. Sure thing, Chris. Uh, Thank you for having me on. I do appreciate it. Absolutely. So you've proposed an amendment to the Constitution of Pennsylvania. That's one of the main things I want to talk to you about today, providing for the right to medical freedom. It is House Bill 2013, and I want to read the text of that amendment. Uh, and it is as follows, quote, the right of an individual to refuse any medical procedure, treatment, injection, vaccine, or prophylactic may not be questioned or interfered with in any manner. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged to any person in this commonwealth because of the exercise of the right under this section, end quote. So I think we all understand that the recent government mandates relating to COVID-19 are the context for this bill, and you've raised concerns about the government's involvement over the past two years, and even earlier with some vaccine legislation. But what was the final straw that broke the camel's back, as it were, and caused you to push for an amendment to the Pennsylvania Constitution? Well, along my journey, and again, I mean, you mentioned I've been uh, kind of legislating in this field for a while, but I actually came up uh, with the idea that we need to legislate some sort of protection from Pennsylvania's before we even had a COVID-19 vaccine, because I saw what happened with the business lockdowns, with the mask mandates, and I figured this was going to come. Uh, so it came to pass that um, I introduced a bill uh, in the summer of 2020, and it was simply called the Right to Refuse Act. And that was simply legislate within uh, the workplace in Pennsylvania, which is a place where we already uh, have many, many regulations that we apply to the workplace. And I thought it was a logical place uh, to to introduce legislation. However, as the, as time has gone by and we've seen government actually mandate these vaccine vaccines, and I know there's people who want to say, well, you have a choice. You can leave your job. Well, that's, that's not a choice. For most people, it's not a choice to leave your job and go find another job that's you know, just as good. So this really is force, forcing vaccines on people. And then, you know, with the vaccine uh, passports, then now we're practicing discrimination. So I believe that we have come to a crossroads, not just in Pennsylvania, but in the United States of America, uh, where we now have to cement our medical freedom as a fundamental individual Right. And I think you need to just examine the language I used from this. Uh, the language I used for this was the same language, A, that protects our right to bear arms in Pennsylvania. And I had a little conversation with one of the leading firearms attorneys, and I said, if you would make our language to protect firearms any better, how would you do it? And that part at the end that says uh, uh, can't be interfered with any in any manner, he suggested that because of uh, what the courts have done regarding the shall not be questioned portion of the uh, protection of the right to bear arms in Pennsylvania. So we added that, that little 
portion, that phrase at the end of that sentence. And then we took the language that pro- prohibits discrimination against people for, for based on their gender and their uh, race or ethnicity in Pennsylvania. These are, these are two parts of the Constitution which already stand. So I figured I would use language that is already well understood in Pennsylvania to create this amendment. And uh, that's what we put forth. And look, we lived under the disaster emergency statute that was in place in Pennsylvania for 42 years. And no governor really abused it. They used it wisely when floods or, you know, tornadoes or industrial accidents or Three Mile Island, uh, you know, happened. They used it wisely. Uh, We didn't know we needed to change the Constitution regarding that phase of Pennsylvania law until we had a governor who abused it. Equally, we didn't realize that we needed protection from vaccine mandates or medical tyranny until we actually witnessed it. Most, much like our founding fathers, they understood what it was like to living to live under a government that did not protect your right to bear arms or did not protect your free speech. And they wrote that those pieces of our constitution for specific reasons because they understood how horrible it was to live when those freedoms were not protected. So this is the same crossroads we're at right now on the medical freedom issue. Uh, We now know what it's like when the government overplays its hand, when corporations join in concert with that government, and we need to protect Pennsylvania's uh, individual medical freedom as a fundamental individual right, and we need to protect them from discrimination when they exercise that right. And... Let's talk a little bit about the, what the amendment is or is not saying and just some opposition to the amendment. Um, I want to read a quote here from – this is from just I think a citizen in Pennsylvania writing to a newspaper saying, quote, who would want to be operated on by medical personnel who had not washed their hands and were not wearing masks and gloves? What about the freedom of those of us who want to be free from reckless endangerment by a lunatic fringe, end quote? So – they're making the comparison that, you know, the COVID vaccine, I guess, is the same as basic hygiene requirements. Uh, what, how would you respond to that line of argumentation? That, that is the absolute most ludicrous argument I have ever heard. We have all learned to wash our hands in kindergarten. It's basic human hygiene. You know, and I don't know any surgeon who's going to walk in and, and perform an operation on you without wearing gloves. You know, I, I mean, it's, it's the most ludicrous of, of red herrings that I have ever heard in my life. So if the government is, and, and with your interactions, I want to get to some of these a little bit later with, with Governor Wolf and, and others, there's obviously opposition to your amendment. But if, if the government's allowed to dictate, you know, what we inject into our bodies or what sort of medical procedures we do, where does their control end? And has, has the people that are really opposed to your amendment kind of made a, a, a position that, hey, the government's authority ends at this point? Or where does this stop if we don't have control of what's injected into our own bodies? You, you actually make a great point there because you said, where does this stop? And we can look at other areas of law where the physical body of the individual is a bright line demarcation between minor um, summary-based charges and actual crimes. You can stand and get in my face and call me every name in the book you want. And 
in the end, you might get charged with a summary version of harassment. But once you lay a hand on my skin, if you touch me, now we're talking battery and now we're talking assault. It's a very simple, clear legal line that is drawn in every other area of law. This is the same thing. All we're saying is, is that I have the right to decide what is medically appropriate for me, and you have no right to decide otherwise. Period. End of story. And I think that takes us kind of to, to my next question, which is this idea that the government knows what's best. And it seems to be a fundamental shift away from the idea of self-government that, in my opinion, the nation was founded on. Um, that we don't need the government to make all of the decisions for us. And in fact, there was a lot of concern in the founding that we, we don't give the government too much power. And it seems that like those pushing the health mandates have extremely little faith uh, you know, in their neighbors to make wise choices. And I was actually just speaking with someone a few days ago, and he mentioned a quote that's attributed to William F. Buckley Jr., who said, I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 people in the telephone directory than by the Harvard University faculty. The idea being that the elites, whether it's in academia or in the government, are not the ones that we should trust to have our best interests. Uh, and there was a fundamental distrust, as I mentioned, of these political leaders in, in the founding of our nation. But people now seem to think that we should always trust the government to tell us how to act and think. Do you see that related to this? And, and if so, what's going on in our nation? Absolutely, I see that. I mean, it's uh, we know what's best for you. Just do it. Don't ask questions. And by the way, if you do ask questions, you're going to get canceled. You're going to get deplatformed on Twitter. You're going to get deplatformed on Facebook. We're going to put all no sort of nasty notices on anything you post. We're going to limit how many people actually see your speech. I mean, we've gotten to the point where we're limiting free speech. We're allowing that to happen. By and look, you you can call Facebook and Twitter, you know, private corporations if you want, but they're operating under the Section 230 of the Federal uh, Communications Law. And so, in my mind, if they're offered government protection, they are now acting as a state actor. You know, the the, the thing here that really bothers me is that if the state really had our best interests at heart, where were those people? who were telling us to take vitamin D? Where were the people who told us to eat healthy foods? Where were the people who told us to get out and get some fresh air, all of which we know are helpful in creating a, 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 a strong immune system that can fight off a virus? The only thing we heard is put on a mask. Don't touch other people. Take a vaccine. And you know what? All along, Every single shred of their malarkey narrative has fallen to pieces. The masks don't work. The vaccines don't actually protect you. That was not, let me give you a caveat there. If you are a vulnerable person, the vaccine may protect you from getting super seriously sick. Okay? But it still should be your choice whether you want to take that vaccine or not, period, end of story. 
And let's talk a little bit. You mentioned masks, and I know you've dealt with this before, but a couple of years ago, Governor Wolf uh, responded to, to some of your comments, and, and Governor Wolf said this. He said, quote, virtually no thinking person disputes mask wearing as an effective means to stop the spread of COVID. Proud non-mask wearers such as Representative Diamond are not displaying their freedom, but rather their ignorance and lack of respect for themselves, their families, neighbors, and communities when they don't wear a mask and are likely leading to more spread of this dangerous virus, end quote. So I just want to talk a little about, about that for a moment. The mask is, you know, less invasive, I suppose, than the, uh, the you know, experimental gene therapy, yes, but it's also based on the same premise that, hey, the government knows what's best and no thinking person, which is quite a claim, despite the fact that, you know, whole governments of other nations rejected the, you know, the efficacy of masks. But, you know, there are a lot of people that seem to disagree with these different mandates. And you've touched on this a little bit already about the idea that if you speak up, you're going to be canceled. But, you know, what do you say to that idea that anyone opposed to mask mandates or opposed to vaccine mandates is simply a person who does not think? Well, the governor is entitled to his opinion no matter how blatantly wrong it is, uh, just like everybody else is. You know, the truth of the matter is, is that, look, when the governor, uh, and I believe it was in late March, maybe early April of 2020, when he first recommended mask wearing, I didn't think that was too far over the line. In fact, uh, when he first recommended mask wearing, he provided some prison-manufactured cheap cloth masks for the General Assembly to use because we were coming back into session the next week. I actually hustled over that weekend to get us some high-quality Pennsylvania-manufactured, uh, high-quality, better-than-cloth Masks, and I hustled them to the to the chief clerk of the House of Representatives on a Sunday afternoon, so that we would have them Monday morning when we all got there. Uh, so I didn't think it was bad to recommend it because at that time, the only narrative we had was this fellow, and, and I can't remember you know the particulars of it, but he traveled from China to Germany and was reportedly asymptomatic. And then other people around him caught COVID. So there was this big narrative that asymptomatic people are spreading COVID. So the recommendation, again, it was just a recommendation, was let's wear some masks in public because we're not quite sure what's going on here. However, about a month later, it turned out that that fellow who went back to Germany actually had symptoms. And it was misreported. But you know what? No one in the mainstream media actually picked up on that and corrected it. And by that time, the mask recommendation had become a mask mandate. But I realized, because I pay attention, that the initial report of that person being asymptomatic was a mistake. Nobody corrected it, but I paid attention. And that's when I decided, I think this narrative is going into the rubbish bin. And I think it's going to fall apart. So that's when I took a stand and I publicly stated, hey, I went out shopping without a mask. And um, I knew that I was going to get attacked for it. But I also knew that I was right, that I was right, that these masks are not going to, especially the masks that, you know, the simple cloth masks that people are strapping on their kids' faces. They're not making a difference. They're not making a difference. So. I was an early adopter there, and, you know, it turns out, you know, we see all these studies now, well, cloth masks don't work. Well, gee whiz, I said that back in May of 2020, 
And, you know, not to tell you told you so, but I told you so. Well, what are other legislators saying about this proposed amendment from the Republican side, Democrat side? What, what are people saying about this? We, we have a lot of support, and we're getting a lot more support as every day goes by. We have some fine uh, grassroots organizations like Health Freedom PA, the Pennsylvania Coalition for Informed Consent. They are now uh, getting in high gear to come up and actually lobby legislators to support this bill, to commit to this bill, and to commit to getting our leadership to run this bill. I, I was a little surprised because I introduced the bill one week and I think it was only two, maybe three weeks later that we actually moved it, got assigned the committee and moved right out of committee. Uh, many thanks to the chair of the House Health Committee, uh, Kathy Rapp. Um, she moved it. She is a big supporter of this bill and she moved it right out of committee. So now we need um, more legislators, uh, especially on the Republican side, because Republicans control what bills come up. We need our Republican legislators to make sure that they tell our leadership that we want to bring this vote up for a vote on the floor, get it over to the Senate so the Senate can take it up and then uh, finish that first phase of the constitutional amendment process, come back in the next session, do the same thing again, and potentially potentially, if we work quickly enough, get this on the ballot for the people to decide whether it will be amended into the Constitution in the spring 2023 election. Now, that's a very optimistic timeline, but it is it is it is doable. It's passable. Uh, and, and we can it, it, we can accomplish that timeline if we get enough people in Harrisburg aboard. But we need folks to reach out of their legislators and let them know that you have this constituent back home who absolutely believes that medical freedom should be a constitutionally protected individual fundamental right. So if the Republicans that are elected in the House and the Senate, if they're all on board with this, this could happen within the next year? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It could be on the ballot next spring at the very earliest. I mean, it's doable. We did it. We did it last time. Okay. We did it at the beginning of the last session because we needed to get those two constitutional amendments to limit Tom Wolf's disaster emergency powers. By the way, Pennsylvania was the only state in the nation that actually limited its governor's emergency powers um, uh, because of what happened at COVID. But we can do this again. We can repeat that for medical freedom. And I do believe it is that critical. It is that I honestly believe this should be done at a national level. This should be a federal constitutional amendment, but I can't propose one of those. I can only propose an amendment for Pennsylvania. Now, this bill has gotten some national attention, um, has been called a potential model for legislation in other states. And I have heard from legislators in uh, Idaho, South Carolina, and there's there's two or other, two or three other states that I've heard from. They would like to model constitutional amendments of their own for their own states based on this language. Uh, again, I think this needs to happen at the federal level, but I work at the state level, so I can only uh, introduce constitutional amendments for the Pennsylvania Constitution. What about opposition? What has been some of the rhetoric used to oppose this bill specific to the amendment? Well, the rhetoric is, oh, you want every kid to get measles, you want people to get smallpox, and, you know, it's such a ridiculous collection of red herrings that I hear on this. Look, I'm a kid that grew up in the 60s, 
in the 70s, and I remember getting the sugar cube with the polio vaccine on it when I was very young. I remember getting that shot in my arm that left a nickel size scab on my arm for what seemed like three months when I was a kid. You know, today's vaccines are not the same as the vaccines of yesteryear. The vaccines of yesteryear were meant to prevent you from getting whatever the illness was, okay? These vaccines, especially the COVID-19 vaccine, this is vastly different. And look, we've changed our vaccine regimen in the United States. I mean, it's amazing to me. Um, Since 1986, when Big Pharma was given blanket immunity when they create vaccines, it's amazing when you're not responsible for what happens to people because of your vaccine, how many vaccines can proliferate through society then at the at the behest of big pharma i mean uh, since 1986 when big pharma was granted immunity uh from liability by the government we have had such a proliferation of vaccine schedules and more and more vaccines for kids and i'm not sure that we've properly identified the long-term consequences of doing that now, you are also running for lieutenant governor, and I just wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of talk about that, and for our listeners who may not be familiar with that role, you know, what you're looking to do if you get elected, and even as it relates to health freedom, potentially. For those people that are concerned about this, that are concerned about the government telling them what to inject into their body, into their children's body, is there any overlap in your role, potentially, as lieutenant governor and this issue? There is. First, first, let me say why I'm running for lieutenant governor. I believe, A, we need, uh, look, the lieutenant governor is a support role for the next governor of Pennsylvania, but we need a lieutenant governor candidate who can help our next governor win against Josh Shapiro. And with my, you know, the leadership I've, uh, I've done through the last two years on election integrity and vaccine mandates, mask mandates, CRT in the schools, uh, it, closings, you know, lockdowns, all that sort of thing. I believe people can identify me with me and, and I can help our next governor beat Josh Shapiro. Second of all, uh, the next Lieutenant governor has to be able to help the next governor govern after elected. And I believe with my relationships with members of the house, with the Senate, I can help forge that bond between the executive branch and the legislative branch, which has been sorely missing for 12 years. It's been almost a dozen years since a governor has been inside the House Majority Caucus room to speak to rank-and-file Republican legislators about positions of priority. So I can help there, too. The third thing about the lieutenant governor is that it needs to be someone who is absolutely prepared to step into the governorship role if something, God forbid, a tragic tragic happens to the governor and my my you know my death of experience before i got to harrisburg 30 years running a business seven years as a factory i've been a truck driver i've been a working musician i'm an author i'm a pilot you got a lot of wells of life experience to pull from to make that transition smooth if needed so how that relates then to the health freedom issue look we've we've learned over the last four years that uh you know, lieutenant governor has a chance to have a bully pulpit. Unfortunately, uh, the current lieutenant governor has used that bully pulpit to advocate for legalizing weed. Uh, I believe that that same pulpit could be used to advocate for medical freedom, 
for and for any other individual rights that are in danger uh, in Pennsylvania or are needed to be advocated for in Pennsylvania. So primarily, the lieutenant governorship is a support role for the governor. You preside over the Senate. You're the presiding officer. Doesn't really mean much, a whole lot more than just running the meeting. You're running the meeting in the Senate. Uh, you are the chair of the Board of Pardons. And of course, our current lieutenant governor sees that as an activist role. I don't see that as an activist role. I see that as a place where you can view things on a case-by-case basis and potentially, potentially uh, do some uh, do some good work. Uh, the, the lieutenant governor is also involved with the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency, and I believe in in that role, I should, could surely help our governor run any any emergency a little bit smoother than the COVID emergency ran by applying common sense <laughs> and just offering the governor common sense. Like, no, you don't want to shut down every business, you know, but you might want to set up COVID recovery wards for these folks in nursing homes rather than sending them back in like ticking time bombs. It's that kind of common sense that, you know, your involvement with the Pennsylvania Emergency Management Agency might be helpful on. Um, so, they are, you know, the lieutenant governorship and medical freedom could be tied together. But most of all, the lieutenant governorship exists in case something happens to the governor. I mean, part of your daily routine is, is the governor, you know, still breathing. Um, I mean, I don't mean to put it lightly like that, but it's a very serious position to be in, to be a heartbeat away from the governorship of the Commonwealth, which is the sixth or seventh largest state in the union. So I don't want voters to take this position lightly because it could happen. And instantly upon being sworn in, the lieutenant governor could be called upon to step into the role of the governorship of Pennsylvania. Thank you for that. Uh, Anything else you want to add here as we wrap up? Uh, Anything you want to say to Pennsylvania voters as they're thinking about the future of the state, as it relates to health freedom, as it relates to the Constitution? and what lies ahead for us as a state? Sure. What lies ahead for us for the state is actually the battle to draw that bright line between what the government can do and what you as an individual can say no to. I mean, that is a huge battle that we need to take on. It's, it's, it's always been an ongoing battle, but I believe with the COVID-19 and with the vaccine mandates, I believe we as citizens need to draw a bright line in the sand. And as your partner in Harrisburg, you know, constitutional amendments or deals, uh, agreements between the General Assembly and the citizens themselves, the governor has nothing to say about them. I mean, the governor can certainly speak to them, but he has no official role in in deciding whether uh, a constitutional amendment is adopted or not. The General Assembly proposes it, puts it on the ballot, and the people go and either ratify it or reject it. It's a very important conversation to hold. To have, uh, you know, looking forward, Pennsylvania has some very serious decisions to make. Um, Electing a new governor is very, very serious, and Pennsylvanians need to choose. Do you want to choose to elect someone who will protect your rights, or do you wish to choose to elect an extension and an amplification of what Tom Wolf did over the last eight years? And part of that is at our primary election here as Republicans. I mean, look, the way Pennsylvania's election system works is that governor candidates run against each other in the, in the primary election, and lieutenant governor candidates 
compete against each other in the primary election. And then whoever wins those two races, is they're inextricably tied together in the fall. So this is kind of like an arranged marriage with the voters serving as a matchmaker. And the voters have to pay attention to the two people they nominate. You want to not nominate two people who are too similar because the goal here is with a two-person ticket, you want to uh, maximize the potential amount of voters who are going to be excited about your ticket. So you may not want to uh, nominate two people who are exactly the same in these positions because you want to appeal to the most voters possible. So you may want to find two people who are a little bit different in these two positions that complement each other, but then don't, don't, uh, you know, don't class with each other. You, you need to complement each other, but not class with each other and attract the most potential voters to the Republican ticket in the fall. If you want Republicans to win and I want Republicans to win. Well, I want to thank you for all that information. Very helpful. I know I will be following this bill, this proposed amendment, closely, and I think a lot of other people will as well. So, again, Representative Diamond, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, Chris. All right, thank you for joining us today on the Lancaster Patriot Podcast. Again, that was Representative Russ Diamond, Pennsylvania State Representative, serving portions of Lebanon County. Speaking about the proposed amendment to the Pennsylvania Constitution, which would guarantee the rights of individuals to refuse medical treatment and to not be uh, penalized for that under the law. So if you're interested in that amendment, if you're interested in health freedom, contact your representative, as Mr. Diamond said. This is the Lancaster Patriot Podcast. We are a production of the Lancaster Patriot newspaper. If you are unfamiliar with our newspaper, check us out at www.thelancasterpatriot.com. We are a weekly print newspaper serving Lancaster County and beyond. We have local sections, state sections, national sections, world sections, faith sections, perspective sections, a lot of different stuff. Check us out, thelancasterpatriot.com. Thank you for joining us today on the Lancaster Patriot Podcast. We'll see you next time.